0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Let's stand this morning for the reading of our texts. Reading this morning from John chapter 3. This is our second sermon in the Advent series. Last week we talked about the Old Testament and finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, I don't know about you, but I myself, even though I'm the one that prepared it, as I prepared the sermon, I found myself uh, a little amazed at how much Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. As I put all that together, what I had to do is, often the case is, the all the clips on the floor in the editing room, all the stuff that's left out. I I said to myself, this would be an entire sermon series if we looked at Christ in the Old Testament in depth. I mean, we really just skipped over the entire book of Psalms for time's sake, uh, but I love that we find Jesus uh, present and promised in the Old Testament. Today, in week two of our series, John chapter three, we're going to be focusing on verse 16. I want to read up to that point so we understand the the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus where this very famous verse comes to light. Verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we read a conversation that happened 2,000 years ago between our Savior and a ruler of the Jews. And from that, has been given us revelation and understanding into your will, your work, and your divine purpose in our lives. And for that, we are grateful. I ask you in these next few moments of time, illuminate our hearts, open up the eyes of our heart that we may see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In John chapter 3, verse 16, in that entire chapter, Jesus is framing the conversation about God giving His only Son by talking about those who believe, and by that belief, experiencing a birth from above. To understand verse 16, we must understand the context that verse 16 sits in. So we got to frame this in the first part of that conversation for verse 16 to to really come to light. There are three main points I draw our attention to on verses 1 through 5. Number one, you absolutely must be born again to be saved. I think Jesus makes that pretty clear. You don't have to dive into it too deep to see the plain meaning of unless one is, and we see this term, we can call it regenerated, we can call it justified, we can call it born from above, a second birth, a new birth. It's all the same experience throughout the New Testament. It's you becoming a new creature in Christ. Without the regenerative power of God's Spirit, you will be lost. Number two, The teaching of the new birth, of the new creation, of new life, is not new in John 3. This is not the first time the Scripture speaks this language. Jesus indicates to Nicodemus that you should understand this idea of a regeneration, of new life, of new birth. You, as a ruler of the Jews, should get this metaphor Jesus is expanding the idea that already existed in the Old Testament, and He is applying it in a way that believers who receive new life in Jesus, our Messiah, this is what the, new, the Old Testament is promising, this new creation, this new life. Number three, new life is given to us through the Holy Spirit And it unites us with the person of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say the purpose of the Holy Spirit was? Was to glorify me, he says. So it unites us. It glorifies Christ in our lives. John would later write in his epistle. So John writes, we credit John for five books of the New Testament. The Gospel of John the letters, the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of the Revelation. So in John's first epistle, he writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. That's how we know we're the children of God. You love God. We obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So you're not saved by law-keeping, but the obedience to the gospel, the obedience to the commandments of God, they're not suggestions. God doesn't make suggestions. He has commandments in Scripture. And the indication that you have new life in you is that there is a fruit of obedience that comes from a person's life. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You could say it a little clearer. We could rephrase that sentence and we could say, our faith is the victory that has overcome the world. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now I, I read this because I want us to see how our faith our belief, and our victory over the world are all tied in together with being born again, born from above. Us being new creatures in Christ is completely tied together with our faith, our belief and our victory over this world. That's what John is doing later. So John, years before he writes this, records a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. But years later, he's had years to synthesize all of this. He is writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, your faith, your belief, and your victory are tied in together with your new birth. So we have a natural birth the first time, and then we have a a spiritual birth. We have the Spirit of God inside of us. Or do you not know, Paul writes, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make them my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we... We can come together like this and we can say, well, we're going to the house of God, but according to Scripture, we are now the house of God. We we go to a house of worship to join together with other believers, but we don't meet God at church. God dwells inside of us. So if you are a Spirit-filled believer, you are God-possessed. The the ramifications of this, think about this, the ramifications of being God-possessed are life-changing because it means He's always with us. It doesn't matter doesn't matter how you feel. I've had a bad day God feels a million miles away. I prayed today. I didn't feel anything. Doesn't matter. God is still inside of us if you have the Spirit of God. We were dead in trespasses and sin and His Spirit draws us to Him. He fills us and He makes us alive. He does that. You don't save yourself. It is the Spirit that makes alive. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, Paul says, by grace you have been saved. So our response to his call is faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And that faith begins a journey where we are justified by faith. Now this is Romans 5 simplified, but Romans 5 justified by faith through the blood of Jesus in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul says all four of those things in Romans 5. This was to accomplish the gospel in our lives. He redeems us, He justifies us, He adopts us. All through the majesty of Calvary. Now you can be religious and not be born again. Going to church doesn't save you. There are lots of people that go to church every week that don't have salvation. That doesn't regenerate you or cause you to have new life. Only God, through Christ Jesus, by the power of His Spirit, causes you... To be born again. It's the summation of the Reformation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, according to Scripture alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We can't save ourselves. You can read your Bible. You can read good books. Listen to podcasts. You can give your time and money to the church. To good causes you can feed the poor. You can care for the hurting and still go to hell. Those things don't save you. Being religious does not save you. Hell will be filled with religious people and people who did good works. It is Jesus that gives you a new life and a new birth and a new chance at life. I don't care how much of a screw-up you are in life. There is nothing that you can do. To go so far that the grace of God cannot find you. I understand Jesus talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But... I truly believe someone who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit that has went that far, they are not seeking a place of repentance. There is a place where God can turn people over to a reprobate mind, but a person that that has any capacity to have a heart toward God, that comes from God. No man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. If you're feeling the tug of, of the Holy Spirit toward God, you can find a place of repentance. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus dies, it is Jesus that cries out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus has nothing to do with his resurrection. Jesus gives the resurrection, Lazarus receives it. Jesus causes new life, Lazarus lives again because Jesus causes new life. Jesus decides to give a second chance, Lazarus enjoys the gift. Jesus gives the miracle, Lazarus acts out the miracle the rest of his life. Life. Jesus gives new life and Lazarus does the living. And we are no different. If we're sitting here this morning, justified, declared righteous in Christ, regenerated, born again, receiving new life, there ought to be a daily and eternal gratitude that causes us to be humble and worshipful because Jesus caused us to be born again. All of that to frame John 3:16. I think you have to have that foundation, that basis, John 3 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life it is a summation of the Christian faith it is as clear and concise of a summation of a creed of anything that we have in the gospel in the bible I have a friend of mine a preacher that often says, Anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should ask what it is there for. There are no accidental words in scriptures, in the scripture. This is why you need a Bible that has all the words. This is why we use translations like the ESV. Because they really try, and there are other translations, this is not the only one, they really try hard to capture every original word that the writer wrote. You have a Bible, some more informal translations. They don't always capture every... They're, 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 they kind of look at it as, well, that was a throwaway word in the original. And we're, no, you need a Bible that has all the words, that makes sense of all the words. So the word for, which is the first word of John 3.16, it's like the word therefore. You could kind of insert therefore as the same idea. For. It refers to something before that. If it were just one verse and you had John 3.16 on a bumper sticker, it would say, God so loved the world. If we had no, nothing else, if we had one quote of Jesus saying this, we could put it on a bumper sticker and say, God so loved the world. That's not what it says. It's four because it's referring to what was before it. You cannot pull verses out without reading them in their context. This has resulted and does result in massive errors in Christianity and errors in people's thinking about the Bible. Well, the Bible says this. Well, uh, you're reading it out of context. Jesus is going to be lifted up, the verses before this. Jesus is going to be lifted up. So Jesus uses the, the picture of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness and the people looking at the serpent and being healed. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Now we know from another passage that Jesus said, if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Now that was a song when I was a kid, and I always thought it meant to exalt Jesus, to worship Him. But it doesn't. Because in that verse it says that He spoke of His crucifixion. That lifting Him up was a prophecy of Jesus being crucified. So when he says the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, he's saying that the Son of Man, the Son of God, is given as a sacrifice from God to atone for our sins, to pay the penalty of my sin. So what does it mean that God gave His Son? Well, what is it called when somebody gives you something? What do we call that? It's a gift. We're in the gift-giving season. So God gives a gift. The question is going to be asked a million times in this season around the world, millions, what do you want for Christmas? I've already been asked it myself today. What, what do you want for Christmas? Give me a list. We're, we're, we're in the gift giving season. As you move from childhood into adulthood, the joy doesn't come from receiving gifts as much As it does from giving. I'm not built up with anticipation today about what am I going to get for Christmas. Um, I get a lot of pleasure and joy from being able to to give gifts. Most of us, I'd say all of us, can't remember most of the gifts that we've given or received in our life. If I said real quick, tell me everything you received eight years ago for Christmas, you wouldn't have a clue. There are a few gifts that stand out over the years. I I can think of a few. Um, A lot of times they're more personal and and memorable than they are assigned a a dollar value. Now, if somebody gives you a a cruise or a car for Christmas, then you'll you'll remember that. But most gifts, uh, they they get shelved by the wayside. This is a time of the year where we have lots of joy and celebration. It's a time of stress and financial pressure. We experience all of these things during the Christmas season. But ultimately, we give gifts to people we love. Well, for the most part, you may begrudgingly give a gift to somebody in your family that you're not crazy about, but for the most part, we give gifts to people that we love. The difference is, God gives a gift of His Son to the world, and the gift wasn't just the life of Christ, it was also the death of Christ. Of Christ that was the gift God as the father has a son the son is fully human he's not like humanity he's fully human there was a, a heresy years ago called the divine flesh doctrine uh, and That seemed to go by the wayside. There's always these these ideas that really detract from the humanity of Christ. But Christ was human. And He was also fully God. He is fully God on His Father's side. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and she becomes pregnant. It's a once in the history of the universe event where the Holy Spirit overshadows a young virgin woman and she becomes pregnant. So he is, his, he is fully divine on his father's side. He is fully human on his mother's side. It's relationship, not two beings, not two gods. It's one God, fused divinity and humanity. So God has a son, and he sends his son to death so that people who believe in his son can live. And that's, that's hard for me. To wrap my head around. I have two sons. It's hard for me to wrap my head around and say, I would do something like that. For people who have rebelled and sinned against me. Paul said, We preach Christ crucified, and this is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So who killed Jesus. Well, Jesus, if He is guilty of the crime that they accused Him of committing, namely blasphemy against God, He is rightly justified to die according to Jewish law. He has committed high treason. But this is who Paul says killed Jesus. For all had sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 And I, I think this section of Romans right here, Romans 3, if there is any central section of the entire Bible that sums up what it is all about. I think these verses are in. We have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Literally there it means we lack God's glory. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward. Who is the whom? The whom is Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So who killed Jesus? God did. According to Romans 3.25, it says God put Jesus forward. He puts Him on the scene as a propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. Paul's actually borrowing from heathen, idolistic people who would go out and the gods are angry at us. Like We haven't had rain in six months, our crops are dying, the gods are angry at us. We're going to go out and we're going to make a propitiation, an offering a sacrifice to the gods that they may give us rain. Paul borrows that language, inserts it into the story of the gospel and says, God puts Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith and that to us is everything about that is is counterintuitive about what makes sense but then paul makes this statement this act was to show God's righteousness. God is righteous when He does this because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are people who have massive issues with this idea. There is an author, and his name escapes me. He's from the UK, but he wrote an article or a book where he made this statement and people have latched on to it. And what he calls this idea of God putting Jesus forward, he calls it cosmic child abuse. And that phrase has been latched upon. This is cosmic child abuse that a father would do this to his son. The fact that God would require a blood sacrifice of his son for my sins repulses some people. And yet it is the cornerstone, the absolute fundamental cornerstone, of Christianity. Several years ago, there was a book or there was a movie. Um, I think it was Mel Gibson that produced it. It was called The Passion of the Christ. Very popular movie, obviously, very contra, controversial movie. But a man named Greg Kokel wrote an article entitled The Christ of the Passion What the Movie Could Not Show. Now, if you've ever seen the movie or excerpts of the movie, you know that it was probably as close to a depiction of the crucifixion of Christ as you could get in a theatrical setting. Bloody, gruesome, horrific. And Greg Kokel writes this. I'm not going to read the whole article, but I'll read a good portion of it. But he says it so well here. This is what he says. The Passion of the Christ is an historically precise visually stunning and viscerally moving portrayal of the crucifixion of Jesus. Yet the most important detail of Jesus' final hours is not in the film. What viewers do not see cannot be filmed. While three hours of darkness cloak the cross, a transaction takes place that has been planned since the dawn of time. I would say since before the foundation of the world. This transaction, he writes, entails a crucial fact obscured by the controversy surrounding the film. Jesus was not a victim. No one took his life from him, not Jews, not Romans. He gave it willingly and purposefully. It was his choice. It's what he wanted. In fact, it was the reason he was born. From the beginning, as predicted in the ancient scrolls, a divine plan had been unfolding. Though conceived by a miracle, Jesus has humble beginnings. He is born, as the prophet foretold in Bethlehem, in a manger among lowly people of modest circumstance. Yet there is a persistent testimony in those early days that He is no ordinary child. The statements of the angel Gabriel, Jesus' mother Mary, Zacharias the high priest, the heavenly host at His birth, Simeon and Anna in the temple, And the Magi all center around one message. Jesus is the very Son of God, the promised Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. For Jesus, the pain of the cross pales in the face of a greater anguish. There is a deeper torment that cannot be seen. No camera can capture and no words can express. More excruciating than nails pinning Jesus' body to the timbers. More dreadful than lashes ripping flesh from His frame. It is a dark, terrible, incalculable agony and infinite misery as God the Father unleashes His fury upon His sinless Son as if guilty of an immeasurable evil. Why punish the innocent one? Nailed to the top of the cross is an official notice, a certificate of debt to Caesar, a public display of Jesus' crimes. The King of the Jews. Nailed. Nailed in writing on top of the cross. The cross is payment for this crime. Being king of the Jews is not the crime Jesus pays for. However, hidden to all but the Father is another certificate nailed to that cross. I love the the imagery that he's painting here. There is another certificate that only the Father can see. In the darkness that shrouds Calvary from the sixth to the ninth hour, a divine transaction is taking place. Jesus makes a trade with the Father. The crimes of all humanity, every murder, every theft, every lustful glance, every hidden act of vice, every modest moment of pride, every monstrous deed of evil, every crime, every man who ever lived committed, these Jesus take upon himself as if he himself is guilty of them all. And at the last, it is not the cross that takes Jesus' life. He does not die of exposure or loss of blood or asphyxiation. When the full payment is made, when the last of the debt melts away and the justice of God is fully satisfied, Jesus simply dismisses His Spirit with a single Greek word that falls from His lips. And we translate it, it is finished. Jesus utters one word that means it is finished. The divine transaction is complete. You don't see that in the movie. The people saw the, the torture, the agony, the brutality, the gore, the violence. They did not see what was actually taking place at the cross. Jesus gave his life willingly. John 10, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Now, if a human father gives of their son in this way sacrificially, that's the end of the story. The son's dead. When God gives His Son, it's already baked into the divine plan that there will be a resurrection. As much as it was ordained before the foundation of the world that Christ would be a sacrifice for sin, it was also ordained that there would be a resurrection and an ascension and a triumph. Now that doesn't negate the suffering, but that suffering servant of Isaiah, remember we've talked about this twice the last few weeks, Isaiah 40-55, through 55, the second part of Isaiah. The identity of that suffering servant is Christ. That suffering servant is not the final chapter. God raises Jesus from the dead. And Jesus ascends into the heaven. And He is presently right now our great high priest. What is Jesus doing right now? Well, according to Scripture, He is making intercession for us. He is our great high priest. This is Hebrews 7. 25 through 27 that's what jesus does for us so what jesus tells nicodemus so sum all this up what jesus tells nicodemus in john chapter 3 16 for god so loved the world that he gave what is a story in john 3 is explored further in depth in romans 3 god put forward jesus as a propitiation for our sins it's the same thing. John 3.16, Romans 3.25, same idea that's going on here. I want us to see that. Same message. John 3.16 is not some light-hearted, chipper, happy clappy, flippant verse that you hold up at ball games. That's probably why it's the most well-known verse in the Bible. This kind of Christian hippie movement that sweeps through the land decades ago. People start holding up these John 316 signs, and there's a guy, his name was Stuart Rowland or Rollin. And Stewart takes it another level. Stewart puts on a rainbow wig, lives out of his car, spends sixty thousand miles a year traveling to every major sporting event he can get into. There were people who became sympathetic with him and would leave tickets at the front gate. He would just go pick them up. Stories about sports announcers that would get him into the stadium. And he would position himself strategically. Even if he couldn't afford the seats, he would get someplace where he knew the cameras would be. And in his rainbow wig and his John 316 sign, he would be on television. To the point where it was frustrating sports teams because he was getting major attention in certain moments he would position himself behind the goalpost and if there was a game-winning field goal that was kicked what people really paid attention to was Stuart Rolland they called him Rockin' and rolling and there he was in his rainbow wig holding up John 316. Well that's really that's like Stuart is credited for being the reason why even today at sporting events if you see a NFL game and they pan the crowd you'll see somebody there with a John 316 16 sign. This is all because of what Stewart does in late 70s throughout the 80s. Now Stewart falls off the wagon. He is currently serving three life sentences in prison. Um, he kind of went into this apocryphal, bizarre, in time mentality that uh, led him to do some terroristic acts. And it's unfortunate that that's where, he, that's where he ended up. As far as I know, he's still alive today, a very old man sitting in prison serving three life sentences. But next time you see a John 3.16 sign at a ball game, you can think of Stuart, because that's probably the reason why it's there. But, but here's, here's my issue with all of this. We look at John 3.16 as some bumper sticker. Well, oh, God, he loved us so much he gave his son. Yeah, that, that's great. And it becomes really lighthearted and, and chipper. And, uh, but if people really, like if you went to a ball game and somebody held up John 3.16 on a sign and everybody there, if their eyes, everybody there that was lost, who was deceived, had the eyes of their heart open to see reality, you would have quarterbacks have the ball snapped to them, look up into the stand, see the John 3.16 sign. If they really understood what it meant and they were lost, that quarterback would drop the ball and walk off the field and say, nothing else matters until I figure this out and get this right. It is arguably, it would be hard for me to think about a verse in the Bible that's more well known in the culture. So people that aren't of faith, that don't go to church, They don't know most of the Bible. You talk to people today, there's a lot of people that don't have any comprehension of the Old and the New Testament. They don't know who Moses or David is. They've heard of Jesus, but Moses, David, Abraham, they don't know who those. are. They may never even have heard of those people. But most people in the culture, regardless of what they have in their own religious upbringing or history, they've heard of John 3.16. If they can't quote it verbatim, they probably could have an idea about what it's about but we miss the point. What does it mean when we say God gave? This is what it meant. He gives His Son. He puts Him forward as a propitiation for our sins. It is an expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. God loved the world. Now, when John later writes, love not the world, The world he's talking about is the world's systems and values and the culture, the ways of the fallen evil world. That's a different way of using the word world. When Jesus said God loved the world, God doesn't love the evil of the world or the vices or the fallen nature. He's talking about the people. Nicodemus knows God loves Jews. Everybody knows. Yeah, God loves, uh, we're his chosen people, Jesus. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, for God so loved the world. That is a radical statement right there. That God loved the world was a radical statement to Nicodemus. That Jesus loves every single person regardless of ethnic heritage. The kingdom is open to every race, to every creed, to sinners, to the hurting, to the skeptic, to the atheist. The kingdom is open. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. There are religions, such as Islam, that struggle with the idea that the eternal, infinite God of this universe had a son. But Scripture is very clear to us that He does. No, God did not have a son in the way that people have children. If you were not here, may have been, you forgot, you can go online and go back to our series in John, and John chapter 1, where we unpack more what it means that Jesus is the Word of God incarnate in human flesh. He is God and He is man. Uh, I've unpacked that more in the past. And God gave His Son for our sins. Faith in Him is not easy believism. It's not mental gymnastics. There's lots of people that believe Jesus existed that aren't saved. The devil has an element of belief. Scripture says he believes in God and he trembles. The devil's not saved. It's not reading a sinner's prayer off a card and calling it good. The sinner's prayer has been responsible for a lot of people going to hell because they read something and they think, well, I, I prayed this prayer that the preacher said pray. and." Now I'm saved. But don't, the other side of that coin is don't minimize the power of what it means to truly believe in Jesus as the one. That allegiance, that faith in Christ is more than mental gymnastics. It is an allegiance to Jesus as He is the Lord of my life. He is the one, capital O, who can save us and the only one who can save us from our sins. And saving faith must be accompanied and driven and produced by a work of the Holy Spirit. We were dead in our sin. It is the Spirit that makes us alive. John 7, if you believe in me, as the Scripture has said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. And John said that this spake he of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 8, except you believe that I am He, you will all die in your sins. I see. There'll be national media figures. Larry King, people like this in years past will get well-known prominent preachers on their shows and then corner them with the question, do you really believe that like Jesus is the only way to eternal life? And it's always amazed me to watch these guys squirm in their seat. And there's one guy that went on with Larry King and I have a lot of swords that I cross with this guy. He's not somebody I spend a lot of time reading and listening to, but he's very blunt, very straightforward, and he's always been able to look in the camera and say, absolutely, that's the crux of Christianity. We believe there's one way. So you don't think that these people here, and these not unless they come through the door, that is Jesus Christ. Jews, unless you believe Jesus is He, You will die in your sins. Muslims, unless you believe Jesus, if that's the entrance point, if that's the door, if that's off the table, there is no eternal life for you. And of course, we get accused of being narrow-minded, bigoted, all of these things. But that is the essence of Christianity. The Gospel of John is saturated with the language of Jesus declaring that you must believe I am the Messiah. And if you do, true saving faith will transform your life. It will lead you to live a life where the Spirit of God flows out of you like rivers of living water. And if you do this, he said, you will not perish. He's not speaking of a physical death. He means that this is the way you escape the righteous wrath of a holy God and have eternal life. Is there anything worse than facing the wrath of a holy God? And is there anything worth celebrating more than the gift of eternal life that is in Jesus Christ? John 3.17. So we've got John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through Him, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus did not come to condemn us. Now here again, we see parallels in the Gospel of John to the book of Romans. Jesus doesn't come to condemn us. I've sat in churches. I've heard preachers that would make me think otherwise. If I didn't feel bad when I came, I sure do when I leave. It's not the message of the gospel. What Christ does is condemn my sin, but His Spirit convicts me. It doesn't condemn me. The difference between condemnation and conviction is condemnation drives you further from the Savior. It makes you hide your head. Conviction convicts you of your sin, but it also draws you. There's a drawing power of the Spirit of God when He convicts you and says, Come to me. We are invited to come to the throne of grace to receive help. When? In the time of need. And that's the time I don't want to come, is in the time of need, but that's when I'm invited. My invitation is when I need grace. My invitation to the throne of grace is when I need grace, in the time of need. And that's the time we don't want to come. So there'll be people that live for days or weeks or months or, God forbid, years under sin and condemnation. Condemnation of past sins that damn them every day. That they carry like a 50-pound sack on their shoulders that droops them down physically, mentally, emotionally, in every aspect. When there is a throne of grace and an invitation from the Savior saying, Come and receive grace and mercy in the time of need. He did not come to condemn us. We're sinners. We already are condemned by our sin. The Son of God did not need to come to this world for us to be condemned. He said he didn't send his Son into the world to condemn us because you were already. You didn't need him to come. You did not need Jesus to show up. You were already there. You were sinners, separated, cut off, severed from relationship with God because of your inherent sin. Just the sin of being you, all of us, filthy, immoral, vile people without the grace of God. There is a lack of the talk of sin today and there's a reason we must talk about it because it's what damns us from our birth. Sin is the problem, and there is no amount of morality or right living or right doing or right anything that can save you or keep you saved. We are saved in Christ alone. John 3.19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Why will the world be judged? Because light came into the world, and people love darkness more than they love light. And before you go and think about how that applies to this present, broken, hurting world full of chaos, think about how it applies to your own life. We still sometimes like darkness more than we do light. All of us. There's still sometimes an appeal to the darkness more than there is the light. Why? Because when our deeds are evil... They aren't exposed in the darkness. They're exposed in the light. And we all need, even continually now, we need the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ to saturate our minds and our hearts, our souls and our spirits so that our thoughts and motives and drives and desires can be more like Jesus today than they were yesterday. It's called sanctification. That's why we're constantly becoming more like Jesus. We say we're Christians. I'm a Christian. Well, that means you're Christ-like. Are you 100% Christ-like? No. Areas in my life after years that if I open up the door of my heart and start going through the back alleys and the closets and the empty rooms and the Holy Spirit's there accompanying me and all of a sudden He goes, "What do we have in here?" And I quickly go, "Oh, nothing, nothing, nothing to see here, Lord. Move on. Look, look at that hall down there. The, the, the second door on the right." You'll like that door. I've done some good things there, but this is kind of my junk closet here. Don't, but no, that's, this is what sanctification is. He says, no, son, let me open that door. Let me purge it. Let me move things from chaos to order in your life. Let me expose the deeds of the darkness. Cleanse it out. Let the light come into these areas. This is what sanctification is. This is why David could cry out, search me, O God, and try my thoughts. Know me and try my ways. Let the light into the deep recesses of my soul inside of those, those dark hallways and closets and the places where we hide our evil ways. Let the Holy Spirit open all of those things up and let Christ in. And what happens when you do? He transforms you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Now with unveiled faces we behold the glory of God as we are being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. It's incremental. We're all being exposed to God's glory. How do you do that? Read His Word. Pray. there's There's no secrets. There's no tricks. It's spending time with God. Keeping Him close to you so that His glory can transform you. we can live lives pleasing to God, not as a way to save ourselves, but as a way to honor John 3.16. This Christmas season and this Advent holiday, I challenge all of us to think of the birth of Christ as the beginning of the story of the Messiah, but not as the end. The birth of Jesus had a purpose. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life let's stand let's pray holy god this morning we have handled holy things no one in this room will ever be able to stand before you and have any excuse We are all without excuse. We have heard so many times the story of the gospel. I pray this morning that the gospel would be more than head knowledge. I pray for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, that it would push the story of the gospel deep into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls, into our very being. Lord, that it would stay with us that we would be Jesus' people, that we would be people that don't live life by the values of this world. I pray that you would open up our hearts to see that there really is a better way to live than the way the world offers, that this way of Jesus is such a better life, even in this life, such a better life, options that you've given us to live close to you and live in your presence to abide in you and for you to abide in us. Lord, that we would see ourselves not better than others, but definitely different than others. We have been enlightened. Our eyes have been opened. We have seen your glory. We have beheld your glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of God. Lord, that every day we would see you in your splendor, your holiness, your majesty, and that in turn, that this seeing, this beholding, this embracing would cause us to make different choices, to live different lives throughout the week, relationally, on the job, in our families, in our finances, that it would affect and alter and transform every area of our life. That the holiness of God would not just be something that we encounter on Sunday mornings, but Lord, that it would truly transform our entire lives, our entire being. Lord, in turn, we give you praise, glory honor and thanksgiving during this advent season as we approach this christmas day lord that we live in light and expectation of your soon coming we ask all of this in the name that is above every name the name of our lord jesus christ amen god bless you this morning